no contact. What I consider the most controversial and extreme of tools or boundaries when we're talking about navigating relationships with toxic or abusive people. I would say this is probably like the measure of last resort. And it's what you start thinking about when all else fails. I have gone no contact with more than one person in my life. And it has touched many of my relationships in different ways. Sometimes the no contact comes quite naturally. The relationship ends and we just don't reach out to each other again. Maybe you move somewhere else and you say your goodbyes. And even though you mean to maybe keep in touch, 10 years later, you realize that you haven't kept in touch at all. It happens. Other times, it does involve an announcement. And sometimes there is no announcement, but it's still pretty drastic. And the decision to get there, it, it's painful before, during, and after. Now today, I want to reflect on my experience going no contact and kind of go unscripted again to do this reflection on what no contact has meant for me, how did I get to that decision, and how have I sustained the no contact period, and what lessons have I learned from, from this process so far. Hi, I am Raisa, a survivor of narcissistic abuse, and I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and you are listening to Hello Trauma Brain, a podcast where I share my experiences living with complex PTSD. My hope is this podcast can help destigmatize mental health and provide support for anyone diagnosed with CPTSD who thinks they might have it or has a loved one with this diagnosis. Quick reminder, I am not a licensed psychologist or mental health care professional. And this podcast is not meant to replace nor substitute the care of psychologists, other mental or medical health care professionals. If you think you might have complex PTSD or PTSD, please reach out to your primary care or mental health care provider. Any individuals and resources mentioned in this episode are not sponsoring Hello Trauma Brain. This episode may reference trauma or abuse, and listener discretion is advised. Remember, you can always pause or skip this episode at any time. And now, let's get back to the episode. Hello, dear survivors, and welcome to this episode of Hello, Trauma Brain. Thank you for joining me today. If you are listening on YouTube, a gentle reminder to hit the like button to let me know this episode was helpful. Usually I give a quick check-in, but it's kind of the whole point of this episode. And I guess the check-in is that this weekend, as I record this episode, I am hitting the one-year anniversary of going no contact with some of the people that have caused my trauma. So I decided to go unscripted and basically today take time to talk about my journey going no contact with some of my abusers and how I am feeling about it as I reflect back on the past year and where I am today. 
And if you have been listening to this podcast regularly, and if this is your first episode, welcome. <laughs> and um, if you catch up with the other episodes, you will notice that I don't quite identify the abusers. And that is very intentional. I feel like there's many shows, podcasts, movies, law cases that are named after many abusers out there. And something that was extremely important to me as I decided to do this podcast was really providing the voice of the survivor and keeping the focus on the survivor. Because again, we our voices don't tend to be the ones out there. And once you start naming the actual abusers, all the focus goes on them. I will keep that intention and not say who I went no contact with. Uh, what I will say is that it was a hard decision. And going no contact is something that it, it causes a lot of shame. And this is something I've heard other survivors say, and it's definitely true for me. It has been one of the hardest decisions I have ever had to make in my life so far. And it was also the best decision for my mental health and my healing. It's so confusing. And thinking back to a year ago where I was back then, I had tried to stay limited contact and I avoided letting them know what was going on in terms of the realizations I was making. Because at that point, I was educated enough that I understood that having a sit down would not be beneficial to me. And given the history of seeing how these people reacted um, when they were dysregulated, that was enough information to know that I was not going to be physically safe or emotionally safe having that conversation either. A year ago, I was still learning the dynamics and I was trying to be limited contact, but I wasn't being clear and I wasn't letting them know. And it became this twisted game of me taking one step forward and then I would get pushed five steps back. And that one step would take so much work to get there. So last year, a few months before I, I made the official decision, this is what my week would look like. I would do therapy, go to a bunch of support group meetings online. Like when I say a bunch, I mean, I was probably spending, I don't know, six to eight hours on meetings a week and doing all this preparation and trying to learn about this stuff and trying to heal and get better and I had this like ritual that I would do before interacting with some of these people and I almost felt like I was on some sort of like mental gymnastics for the Olympics and I was doing all this preparation for like a call and 10 minutes in the call I was already <laughs> getting demeaned <laughs> and abused and used like an emotional punching bag and I would start feeling the anxiety on my chest and feeling just sick and then within 10 minutes, start working the call towards an end. And then for the rest of the day, it was just a disaster mentally and emotionally speaking for me. And it would be another three to four days to recover from that 10 minute call. And then start gearing myself up for another 10 minute call the following weekend. It got to the point where it wasn't sustainable. And the more I learned, the less I could tolerate putting myself in what I, I've heard Dr. Romani call the tiger's cage. So I was basically, you know, trying all these things to be able to go in there and not be affected and not be hurt and be able to just stay stoic and and regulated and calm and collected 
And the truth is, it's really hard to do when someone's punching the shit out of you. And it wasn't a physical punch, but let me tell you, the implications of an emotional punch are just as fucking bad. I was constantly exhausted, frustrated. You know, I would I would go into these interactions and, and just, I would leave them feeling awful. Just so bad about myself and my self-esteem would just tank. And I just couldn't do it anymore. Hello, trauma brain. There it is. I had nothing left to give. I, I, I didn't know what else to do without sacrificing myself. I feel like the only thing I had left was either this is going to destroy me or I'm going to have to do something really drastic to protect myself. So... Thanksgiving weekend was rolling in and it was yet another holiday when I'm stressing about how the heck am I going to be in contact? How the heck am I going to navigate this? And I, I just couldn't do it. And I did this unplug. And with some people last year, I just wished them the happy Thanksgiving like the day before. And on the day I was just not responding to anything. And then I took that long weekend And I decided to sign up for a healing community that is led by licensed independent clinical social worker and childhood trauma specialist, Patrick Tihan. And he has a healing community where you can pay to be a member and you have access to the workshops and all the materials. And he also has a a lot of resources for free on YouTube. So if financially speaking, you're, you're limited to become a member in his community. And I think he has a wait list right now. I still invite you to check out the YouTube content, which is extremely valuable and helpful. So I went in there and I did a workshop and there is a particular workshop he had on navigating a cutoff and it was exactly what I needed. And there's even a diagram that walks you through like things to try before you go to that last resort of going no contact. And I remember going through the diagram and at that point I was, and that was part of the reason I was also considering it because I was so confused. It's so confusing to see things for what they are when you keep going in. It is really hard to walk through trauma that is right in front of you. And when I say in front of you, like a huge pile that you can't even like see the top from where you're standing when there's more getting piled on right on top of what you have already in front of you. And when I took that workshop, uh, I could still see the confusion like are they are they not am I exaggerating is it bad enough to merit it I was so confused and I remember going through the the workshop and and I remember getting to the end of it and thinking I have to and again this is something I took a year ago so I'm trying to like remember different aspects of it and one thing that I remember realizing when I got to the end of the workshop was I needed to reduce the stakes and I needed to make it a decision that wouldn't be permanent. What do I mean by that? When you're deciding to go no contact, it feels really daunting if you are making that decision from a place of, I will never, ever, ever talk to that person ever again. I don't care what fucking happens. It's over. It feels like a really big decision when you're looking at it from that lens. And it, it, that's how it felt to me. So 
what I did, and it's still what I'm doing is I decided to go no contact for a period of time. So temporarily, at least that's the plan for now. And can it change? Yes, I can go back in contact if I choose to. And if obviously if they also want to talk to me. And I would say given their behavior, since I've said that no contact, I would say that's a yes. And I can also choose to make it permanent. And I, it's, you know, I guess I can go any way. But right now the intention is to be able to be in contact in some way eventually. I don't know if I will be able to figure that out or if it will work out if I decide to do that. You know, there's there's so many factors here. You can try to go back and, and start contact and they've gotten worse or you can't tolerate not even their best behavior and it just doesn't work out. And once I took away that pressure of all or nothing, that black and white, like, okay, this can be just a temporary thing while I heal, it became more manageable for me to digest making the decision. So I send these people in writing that I was making this decision and then I needed space to heal and I would not be in contact unless it was a medical emergency. And I remember writing the letter and running. I had to like jog to the mailbox to send it because I <laughs> I knew if I, if I slept on it, I was probably not going to send it. And I did it. And I remember... <laughs> If anyone was looking towards the mailbox that day, they probably thought something was <laughs> clearly going on with me. Probably think I'm <laughs> I don't even know what they thought. <laughs> but I started laughing and like I feel like I started crying too. Like it was just like this weird mix of feelings that I felt right as I slid that letter in the mailbox. Like I started laughing. And then I started freaking the fuck out. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I need to walk. And I just started walking. It was really cold. I remember, I, don't, I, I can't remember how cold it was, but I do remember it was not, it was not warm. And I just took a walk and I was like, you know what? Let the cold ground me. I, I need to like just <laughs> move, move my body somehow. Because it felt so big. It felt like such a big decision and so much shame and so much guilt came and that's the complicated thing about some situations where you go no contact. And in this particular one, these are people that I love deeply and wholeheartedly. And it's so confusing to think about them because there are good moments. There were good moments where I did feel loved and I felt like they cared. And then there were some other moments where, oh, wow, where was it? Where did the love go? I don't know. I don't know that they know either. <sighs> mm. Let me tell you, this is the thing when you go unscripted. I feel like I'm jumping in from idea to idea. And I hope this makes sense by the time I'm done editing it. Oh. Okay. I'm trying to. Okay, what happened after I sent the thing? And I started doing the work. The fog started lifting. And it's one thing that I will say started happening. Once I cut the ties and I stopped piling on abuse 
on a weekly basis on top of the one that I already have to work through, which is a lot of years, let me tell you. I started to realize a few things. First thing was how bad it was. How much betrayal blindness had played a role in me not seeing things for what they were. And a little recap on betrayal blindness. That's what happens to your brain when the betrayal is happening from someone that you trust, that you love, that's a crucial person in in your life and who feels like an important person towards your survival to towards you living and, and existing and in order to reconcile any problematic toxic and abusive behavior your brain actually kind of like puts it away somewhere else in some cases it can completely erase some of some of the stuff going on to protect you in some cases it reframes it and minimizes it to the point where you normalize the behavior and it doesn't seem problematic but it actually is the whole theory with betrayal blindness is that it it stops happening or it starts diminishing, perhaps, I would say. Once your brain realizes that you can actually survive realizing what's going on. Once you get to a point where your your brain registers, okay, like we don't need this person to survive anymore. We can start seeing it. It starts like unpacking the stuff and putting it in front of you and you start realizing, holy shit. This person has been doing this to me the entire time. And that's what happened. And it's still happening. I'm still realizing things that I didn't see before. I still get confused. I still need to remind myself of things that I realized already. It's weird. I will realize something today and in two months from now, I will need to remind myself of it. And that's part of the reason doing the lists are so important. And I've heard people call complex PTSD a brain injury. And I will say I, I agree with that. My brain is not a normal brain. My brain doesn't hold on to information in a normal way. It's really ironic because I I consider myself to be a pretty smart person. Like academically speaking, I did well. And I can manage. I'm not a genius. I'm not the smartest person in the room. But I'll hold my ground. Yet this shit's so confusing. It's so hard to make sense of it. The other thing I discovered in this past year, since I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna frame it as, since I put a stop to some of the worst abuse happening in my life on a regular basis, that is starting to figure out who I really am. Who is the real and authentic Risa? And that, let me tell you, that has been a beautiful yet painful process. There's a lot of grief that comes with that. Because when you realize you're in your mid-30s and you are just discovering things about yourself later in life that you should have discovered back when you were developing and you were a teenager perhaps or um, like a young adult, it's painful. It's a lot of grief, a lot of grief around all the wasted time, all the experiences that I missed out on um, in my earlier years because I couldn't even fucking go there. I, My bandwidth was so investing in surviving what was happening around me that I didn't have any left to individuate, to be my authentic self, to make decisions for me, to figure out who the fuck I am. 
My personality has been so wrapped around my fawning response. I'm so used to being a fucking chameleon. Like if somebody was to make a show where like they take me and they put me in room with different people and they take footage of me like how do I change depending on who's in the room? It would make a fascinating thing to watch. Let me tell you, it's uh, it would shock me probably to watch it back too. It's weird because I felt like I was being authentic. But looking back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I wasn't. I was who I thought I needed to be to appease or to make the person in front of me comfortable. I, I wouldn't voice my opinion. I wouldn't ask for the things that I needed. It got so bad that I didn't even know my preferences. Like even asking me what's my favorite food or things like that. Like I can answer that now. And I, and in a way, I could answer it then, but, but let's just say my favorite food is something that I know somebody else dislikes. I might have not disclosed my actual favorite food. I would have maybe said something else just so that person wouldn't feel uncomfortable <laughs> or put on the spot or shamed. Like, <sighs> and I still do that sometimes. Another thing that I struggled with, especially when I began the no contact, and it still has been a theme throughout, but it's, it's improved a little bit, I would say, is the shame and the guilt that I didn't do enough to make it work before going to this extreme of going no contact, or that I didn't try something else before making this decision. And there is this Instagram post from Patrick Tehan that, quite frankly, I, I feel like I need to like print it and frame it, <laughs> but it's somewhere in my apartment. It says, going no contact is a decades-long process. And if I really look back, if I really take a good look at all the times I asked for someone not to criticize the way I dressed or when I would let them know that it was hurtful when they criticized how I decorated my apartment so harshly or that I didn't appreciate that they would post on social media all these loving things about me and then give me a call and just tear that photo apart like why did you post that why did you look that way why didn't you do this why didn't you smile in a different way like it was just relentless and I would let them know and they would still do it again and again and again. When I look back and I see how they reacted when I voiced dissent, when I look at how they treated other people when they didn't agree with them and abused them and abused me, when I look back and I see the history of all the thousands of cuts that I took over and over again I did it all there was no thing I failed to do if anything I could have taken the no contact way sooner they got lucky I didn't realize what was happening <laughs> until I did because it gave them a lot of years of being able to use me as a punching bag to regulate themselves get supply from me and validation and praise and <sighs> It's hard. It's hard to not feel guilty 
and that post is a decades long process. And maybe for you listening, it wasn't decades, it was five years, it was months. And when I really look at the bigger picture, it took so many years, it took so much, and I took so much. Does it still hurt? Yes. Constantly. Had a lot of nightmares at the beginning. I was a, That was a big thing. Once I started that process, and I started documenting the nightmares too, the most violent, horrific nightmares, and that went on for a while. And still they come, but not as often, thank goodness, because that was really intense. And a lot of grief. And it still is a lot of grief. Uh, do I wish things were different? Yeah, I sure do. I wish it would have not come to this. I wish things were different for them and for me. And something I do want to talk about too is I've got no contact with other people too. Like there are relationships where they end and you don't talk to each other anymore. Or there were some where they would end and I would try to stay in some sort of relationship with, with the person. And then they would do something so fucking egregious. <laughs> I would be like, okay, that that's it. We're done. I'd be like, I tried. But no, we're not doing this. One of the most heartbreaking things that I am still coping with and managing is the fact that even after I have stopped interacting with a lot of the people that have been abusive in my life, and here I'm putting, I'm talking about all of them. Something that fucking amazes me is how their voices are still there. <laughs> still there. I still hear their voice saying, you're not good enough. There was one person once that said to me, you will never make anyone happy. And this person said this to me. Uh, when was that? Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. This person said this to me. I mean, well over a decade ago, I still hear it. I still feel it. And I think a part of me is still scared that that person is right about me and that I won't make someone else happy one day. I still hear the voice that says that I am a pig and that I am all these horrible things. I still hear it. It's still there. And I guess the benefit from going no contact is that they can't add on to the pig and add more insults to it. But make no mistake, the damage is done. And I'm still recovering from it. I still hear the voice that blames me and calls me things. And heck... I just went no contact with another person yet, recently. This was someone I didn't know for long. It's really amazing how much damage these people can do, especially when you set the boundary. Let me tell you something I've realized about setting boundaries with people. I am yet to walk away from a relationship or announce a hiatus to the relationship where I have not gotten confirmation that I'm doing the right thing. What do I mean by that? Every single time, without fail, I'm telling you 
every single time. Their reaction is so out there, so abusive. And it's sometimes it's overtly abusive and sometimes it's covertly abusive. But every single time. And let me tell you, they put it in writing too. <laughs> or they record it in a voice message. It's again, it, it, it sometimes baffles me how they hand it to me on a silver platter. But heck, thank you because I can take it to my therapist and I can listen back to it or read it and get that confirmation. Like I am yet to walk away thinking, fuck, I got it wrong. They were healthy. Look at how loving, look at how healthy, look at how well they're managing and respecting my decision. I am yet to see that happen with a toxic and abusive person. And the thing is, the healthy people in my life, they don't do shit that merit for me to cut them off or put a hiatus in our relationship. So it's just, it doesn't happen. So by the time I get to the point where I'm setting those harsh boundaries, you've really crossed the line quite a few times. And then I get the confirmation. And I get that evidence of, there it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it usually tends to be so bad that the confirmation actually shocks me a little bit because it shows me that they were actually worse than what I thought. Sometimes I have like set the boundary and a part of me is like, oh my gosh, am I getting this right? Are they? Maybe they were not. And then they come back with a confirmation and I go, yep, <laughs> never mind. Oh, they were so much worse. So we're good. <laughs> well done, Raisa. We did it. Now I want to circle back around to a few things that I have learned about sustaining the no contact period. And some of them I knew as I started the process. Others I found out after and I wish I would have known that a year ago. So you get to benefit now from the wisdom I have gained in this in this time so far. One thing that I did not know a year ago that I actually learned later. However, I was actually doing it back then. I was fortunate enough that it was already part of my toolkit. I just didn't know that that was something that I really needed to make sure it was in place or at least be aware that I would need to have um, as I started the process is having another place to land. And this comes from integrative coach Nick Werber. And he said this either on one of his workshops or on an Instagram post. It was something along the lines of when you are getting out of the system, the toxic system, and this can be a workplace, it can be a family system, it could be a group of friends or a religious group, whatever have you, when you are leaving a toxic system or stepping away, you need another place to belong. And here I'm, I'm going to use an example. Let's just say you're leaving a group, a group of people that have been around for a very long time. They have seen you go through so many things and they've become an important part of your life and you are stepping away from that system. If you don't have another place to land, another group, that being a support group, for example, you will have a really hard time staying away. It's going to be a lot more likely for you to just go back because what else are you going to do? Speaking of support groups, that's actually what I had at the time. I already had a support group that I was attending. It kept me on track for a few reasons. A, once I stepped away, 
and I started seeing things more clearly, I would hear somebody sharing their story and it would hit me like, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. A lot more clearly than it used to before. Two, there was that camaraderie because I wasn't the only person cutting ties. There were other people there who had done the same thing and they were such an important resource for me as they would share what was helpful to them. And as we connected just through the mere fact that we were experiencing that that massive whirlwind of emotions and, and feelings. The other thing is too, feeling like you belong somewhere. Like you are not alone. You're not out there isolated. But now you get to build a new community for yourself, a new home. Have I noticed improvements in my mental, physical, and emotional health since cutting ties? Yeah, my mental health has improved. I see myself with a lot more compassion. I have a lot more love for myself. I see my value. I have started embracing who I am without as much shame. It's still there. Some of the shame is still still bleeding through. I have found some parts of myself that I didn't even know were there. And they were just dusted up, hidden somewhere in a dark corner in <laughs> inside of me. And I have found some beautiful things about me. Every time I find a little piece of myself, it's almost like it sets me free too. And I feel more human. And clinical psychologist Ingrid Clayton nails this in her book, Believing Me. She talks about how like once you start a healing, and it's almost like a Pinocchio experience. Like you feel like you're becoming a real person. And yes, it feels like I'm becoming a real Risa, a real human being. Oh, not just this mirage of whatever people needed me to be. I also feel like I'm a better person. I used to have some serious toxic behaviors under my belt. And um, some people call it the narcissistic fleas. And let me tell you, I yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely picked up some some really nasty habits and, and ways of behaving from from being stuck in a trauma response and from being around certain people for a lot of time. And that's a whole other episode, coming to terms with how toxic I was too. But now I can see myself behaving in a better way and handling conflict in a, in a healthier way and not getting as triggered and dysregulated as I used to. Like I used to take things more personal and really still in resentment sometimes too. And now it's like, it's not about me. This is, this is this is not about me. Even when some of those abusive people have been like lashing out and like saying some nasty things to me or writing me, you know, these horrible things diagnosing me with A, B, and C, like I know it's not about me. Something's going on with them and I hope they take a good look at it so they can improve. But I also don't feel responsible to get them to wake up and get better and improve. I have allowed myself to be, I guess, selfish for like the first time in my life. And yeah, the resources are coming towards me now. I'm focusing on RISA and improving my circumstances and becoming better. And that's good enough. I don't need to get the world to be on board with me. Now, if somebody wants to get on board with me and they want to learn from my experiences, fantastic. That's why this podcast is out there because I figured sharing my experience might help someone. But... I'm not shoving it down people's throats. And I don't see myself as a failure if I can't 
inspire or help someone or get them to wake up. It feels great when that happens. If I can be part of somebody's journey to become better, it feels amazing. It's, it's a beautiful experience. But if someone takes what I say and they're like, nope, that ain't for me and I'm going to still abuse and, 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 <laughs> and refuse to look at myself, okay. And I won't stick around to witness how that goes for you. And I actually want to share something that can be quantified, which is an improvement in my physical conditions. This year when I got my blood work done, something that showed up honestly shocked me because I have been borderline or pre-diabetic for many years. And my blood work this year came back with normal blood sugar levels. (laughs) I cannot believe it. But it was not the it was not the usual borderline diabetic um, result, and it's possible that I need better testing or something a little bit more involved. Quite frankly, just seeing the word normal there, like to have the doctor tell me your blood sugar levels are actually normal this year, it kind of blew my mind. And whether it is related or not, a part of me wants to say it, it might be because if your body's not in constant stress. And, you know, if your amygdala is not running the show all the time and my body is able to allocate the resources a little bit more equally between the entire body, not just focusing on survival mode, it would make sense that my body would be working more efficiently and processing things like sugar intake in a better way. Now, I do want to acknowledge a few things. Licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Ramani Durbasola has said in interviews that the research does support that no contact works. The main reason for why it works is because you're literally stopping the cycle of abuse. You know, you're not continuing to pile on more and more and more. She also acknowledges that it's very complicated, and I agree with her. No contact is not something that's easily accessible for people. It's not something that is practical for everyone or possible for everyone. There's tons of people out there that would like to go no contact and cannot. For example, you might still be living with the person that you want to go no contact with, but you don't have the financial resources at this time to be able to move out. And if you're living in the same home, it'd be a little hard to go no contact. For some other people, it might be where you work. And if you are depending on that salary, you're not going to be able to go no contact with the people that you work with. For others, maybe your friend or your roommate, it's the same situation. You're living together You're going to have to look at other sets of boundaries in the meantime. Some circumstances include those of you that are co-parenting. You have a child and you want to go no contact with the other parent. That's going to be a little difficult. You will need to contact that other parent in some way to coordinate and all the decisions that come with parenting your child. Also, let's face it. We live in a world with a lot of human beings out there and new people keep constantly coming into our life. It's not going to be realistic to expect that we will get to a point where no toxic person 
will ever get into our lives in any way and in any level. That's not how life works. Every time we meet a new person and we decide to let them in a little bit, or maybe a lot, we're taking a risk as part of the process. And again, this particular no contact that I've talked about mostly today is not meant to be a permanent all or nothing. I, I do have the intention to resume contact in some way at one point. And even though I don't know how that would even look like or if it would be sustainable, I am allowing myself to have the freedom to change my mind at all times. And if any of you listening are struggling with making this decision, there was something that someone in a support group once told me that was so helpful, which was breaking it down. It goes back to that removing the high stakes from the decision. Try it for a month and see how it goes. Then you can do three months, six months, a year, reevaluate. Now, as I hit a year myself, I still need more time. I'm still navigating a lot of confusion and it won't be helpful to my mental healing and the progress I've made so far this year to change things today. And I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. But no contact is complicated. It's not the only choice. It's not the only tool. And it's not the only way to heal. I have not cut off every single toxic person out of my life. It's so complicated. So for anyone listening who's struggling with making this decision or maintaining having made this decision, I want you to know that doing what is best for you is okay. I want to remind you that we do not need someone else to sign off on our decisions to protect ourselves. We don't need them to understand why. We don't need them to agree with us. We don't need them to join us and do the same thing. This is a very personal decision. And quite frankly, I, I, an impossible one. There's no winning here. I didn't go no contact and notice my life take a turn for the best. And now everything is fixed and the trauma is gone. And I don't struggle anymore. And I don't even need therapy. Like, heck, I had to like get myself a trauma therapist. Like that's one thing I did right after the no contact. Like I had to switch to a therapist that was trauma informed because I knew I would need some serious resources to be able to navigate and sustain my decision. Anyone thinking about this or going through this right now, my heart goes out to you. Oh my goodness, with, with so much compassion and so much solidarity, I honestly wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. And I would say, get information Go on YouTube if you are able. And this is how I saw joining Patrick Dehan's healing community last year. That was my holiday present to myself. I thought, you know, instead of getting myself clothes or a new iPad or whatever, I said, I'm getting myself the gift of joining this community. So, so if you get a gift card or you get some extra money, you know, that's something to consider. 
investing it in your healing. So I feel like sometimes we don't we don't think about it that way. Like we don't think about our healing being something worth investing in. And yes, it is. And if you don't get the gift card or the financial resources, again, a lot of these experts that have communities where you have to pay to be a member, they offer plenty of content for free on social media or on YouTube. And it's a gold mine. It really is a gift that we live in an era where a lot of this information is available. The other thing I'll say is collect the data. Write it down so you don't forget. It's so important. And I will link one video from Dr. Ramani in particular. This one is about going no contact. And she really goes through all the nuances and how complicated it is. So if, if you are new to hearing this, this term or this tool, that's a great place to get started with learning more. In this week's healing invitation, I want to offer you a few things to reflect about. Reflect on the tools and the boundaries you have set with toxic people in your life. Think about how setting those boundaries have changed how you feel and your relationship with yourself. I invite you to write down or reflect on what you've gained from setting the boundaries. Just like having Dr. Ramani's egg list is important and that's a list I've referenced in previous episodes where you write all the horrible things the toxic person did. Writing this list that I personally call the things I will lose if I remove my boundary list is so crucial because it's a reminder of the things you've gained, the things that have come to your life that have improved your life since you set the boundary. And they're also the things that you might be losing if you completely take the boundary away and go back to interacting just like it was before. I invite you to take a look at that list when reconsidering any future changes in boundaries and interactions. Part of healing is collecting tons of data. So important for us as survivors, especially if you have cognitive symptoms with your complex PTSD where your ability to retain memories or see things clearly is very affected and distorted sometimes. Please let me know how this week's healing invitation goes if you choose to accept it. Before we wrap up this episode, all music and production is courtesy of yours truly. Also, I want to share a few ways you can help support this podcast. You can subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or the platform you are using to listen. Share this episode with anyone you can think can benefit from this content. Follow Hello Trauma Brain on Instagram with the handle at Hello Trauma Brain. Subscribe to the Hello Trauma Brain YouTube channel and hit the notification bell to be the first to know when I post a new episode. And you can make a donation by getting me a coffee through the official bio site. No worries, all links will be provided in the show notes.
Thank you for joining me today. I hope this episode is helpful. I wish you the best as you make decisions on what boundaries are needed, especially as you navigate the holiday season. It is time for our farewell affirmations. You are welcome to repeat after me. I am enough. I am lovable. And I deserve to heal. I wish you a gentle week and thank you for listening.